Welcome to episode 10 of Locomotive. Oh my gosh, it's been 10 episodes. It's 10 episodes. Are we sure this is episode 10? I don't know. I was thinking about this. What, when did we start doing this? Do we start in 2022 or 2023? Well, we started plans in 2022, and then we coordinated to release our first episode January of 2023, and I believe that's what happened. <laughs> I know. Uh, that feels no, like I, years ago. I have no idea what happened. Yeah, it feels like we've been doing this for like a year, but it has been about a half year now. Yeah, I'm so excited that we're up to the 10th episode and almost wrapping up our first season officially. And we have some exciting stuff for the next season. Should we talk about kind of... Yeah, I don't remember if we have talked about it at all. I feel like maybe you've teased it. We've teased the idea of changing it up for a second season, but we haven't really mapped out what that is because we didn't know. We, we still weren't sure what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But essentially, the idea for this new format is we're not doing interviews for this next season. And this is just to pause certain interviews. It doesn't mean that we're not going to jump back in if there's an important interview to be had. Um, but for this season, what we're going to do is we're each going to take an assi- or choose a theme for an episode. And then... We're each going to do our homework and find a different story underneath that theme. And then during the episode, take turns sharing the stories with each other. And so it isn't necessarily like we're just going to tell each other stories. We are going to do reporting. We're going to ask people questions. We're going to get poll quotes, get interviews. Um, I didn't know all that. (laughs) (laughs) In, in a much smaller capacity. It's not going to be... Well, essentially what we want to replicate is what it's like writing a story. And I think we both miss mm. that yeah. uh, practice of a profile article. So we're going to do that and then read them to each other, essentially. Yeah. Present our findings. And it'll be pretty fun. We want to come up with some fun themes. You know, we have some ideas about things about Salt Lake City to cover. Um, For example, the Wizard of Salt Lake uh, and also the Christian school that had just recently closed down and uh, kids care, daycare. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, there's a lot of topics I think that probably wouldn't be something we could hang an entire interview on, but that would be fun to talk about under the umbrella of of a larger theme. Yeah, so we are looking forward to that. For this season, we have one more episode left. There's this one, and then we have one more with Granary Arts to talk about Critical Ground, which is an event that's coming up. But after that, it's totally going to change, so we're really excited. Yeah, I think that'll be fun. Well, today we're interviewing uh, Brooke Nielsen. Brooke Nielsen? Yes. (laughs) Comedian, yes. How do you know Brooke? Who is she? Well, I actually met her at Alamexo, Mexican Grill, I think. I don't know. I think I just added that second name to it. But But it's a restaurant that was on State Street. It was, yeah, it was a restaurant. What's there now? Uh, Similar restaurant. (laughs) It's not the same people. What's it Um, called? God, what is it called? I don't know. Between State and. 100 and 200 or yeah it's on state street between 100 south and 200 south yeah 
Yeah, I'm not totally sure what it's called, but it's so weird because we did go there and they had all the same furniture from the restaurant that like I used to clean hmm. <laughs> and the same like counters and stuff. So it feels like, you know, they killed Alamexo and then are wearing its bones as jewelry. <laughs> but yeah, I met her, you know, when I was uh, a busser, <laughs> I think I was busing or like and then bartending and then serving at this restaurant and she was a server. And we always just got along. I really love her. And I find her really fascinating and could just listen to her talk all day. So um, when I heard that she was doing comedy, I mean, she'd always been DJing. And I feel bad because I, I hadn't really gone to a lot of her DJ um, events because I'm afraid of events. <laughs> when you say you hadn't gone to much of them, do you mean you haven't gone to any of them? I went to one like okay. years ago, I believe. Right. I think maybe even before 2020. Um, but I uh, I'm intimidated by a, 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 a situation in which a DJ uh, is playing and then there's like this, this pressure to dance and I'm not a very good dancer so I don't know I get uh, self-conscious about that. Anyway, um, so when I heard she was doing comedy, I'm like, yes, uh, this is a great way uh, where I can this post This is good support. for you. This is good personally. for me. It's, it's <laughs> um, And I saw her perform over at Waikiki, and that was really great. And she was, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, she was the best out of all of them. I was like... Mm, not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, we get to talk to her today about comedy in Salt Lake City, what it means, and her experience. Yeah, it's fascinating. So let's dive in. I, th I think that that's the thing with the art, like the art world and the acting world is just like, I think the idea is like we're supposed to be very earnest mm -hmm. when we present ourselves, and where it's like, I'm an actor and this film was wonderful and... I take myself very seriously and you should too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a thing in the art world too. And so I think that it's confusing if you're not good at doing that because I'm not good at that. For me, it's like my first impulse is like, I want to like pull your leg. Like mm -hmm. I want to like, I want to like fuck with you. Like if I can. And, um, but that's the thing. That's a thing. And so it's like, it's, it's interesting when somebody's not doing that. Cause that's part of why like people like love Andy Warhol so much. He did kind of expose like how like, ridiculous it all was mm -hmm. they would be like what do you what is this art about and he'd be like i don't know you yeah. know and they'd be like what do you care about like money you know it was just very yeah. like flat it was just very like and i think that in salt lake i think it's more earnest i think you have to act more earnest because it's like a small town vibe so it's like you better really mean what you made and and people want a literal reading of everything too and I think that's, like, reflective of the dominant culture. Mormonism is, like, pretty literal. They'll be like, oh, it's all symbolic, but it's actually quite literal. Mm -hmm. And the way that people believe things is very literal. And so if you show somebody something that's abstract or it's not easy to understand at first, people usually just, they just go to, like, well, what is it? What does it mean? They just want a really simple way to reduce it and to understand it. But the best art doesn't do that. It the best art like sticks with you because it's not, it takes time to digest. Mm -hmm. I would say like a, like a good food, like good food is like, it's not made of like really simple ingredients. Your body, it's more complex. Anyway, that's my sermon. And I think that 
is what like attracts me to anything that you do because you oh. do have a very silly approach. I'm gonna let you speak for yourself okay. on on what you want to talk about on the breadth of the work that you've done as oh, a thanks. DJ, as a comedian. Oh wow. They're popping my podcast cherry. <laughs> <laughs> no, um so um so when I moved to Chicago like uh forever ago, what's it been like ten years, nine years? But like I remember I had to get rid of most of my things. And so I couldn't keep physical things as much. I love to make physical things. I love to collect physical things, antiques, and all kinds of glittering things. But So I moved and I started making things that were digital. And that's when I started to work more in sound, like more directly. And um, I've done a lot of different uh, projects. But um, one of the things that I noticed that I've kept track of or kind of watched over, kind of kept an eye out on, just some DJs. Like when I moved to Utah, when I first moved away from home, there were a bunch of DJs in Provo. It was really important to observe them and to, I think that, I think a DJ kind of is meant to be like a steward of like a community. I know, and I know that people like joke about how there are like so many DJs and it's just mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, my dog's DJ, you know, <laughs> but, um, but the truth is like, I think there's something about the role of a DJ because a DJ is someone who they, they select things. They're a curator. It reminds, it kind of reminds me of Andy Warhol cause Andy Warhol wasn't, and it wasn't, it wasn't as much about his brush strokes. He was an artist as like a pointing finger. So he would just point at the Campbell's soup or he'd point at the bananas or whatever he's pointing at and that was how he made his art his art was so much about erasing himself from the work even other people would be making it and i'm not saying that he's somebody we should emulate exactly there are a lot of problems with andy warhol but i think that like when you think about like a somebody changing the channel on a tv while they're watching things or clicking through videos on youtube it's the dj is the most similar to that in my mind, and then when I moved to Chicago, there were um, DJs there that were really important for me. One in particular, her name is Ariel Zatina, and I met her at a restaurant where I worked. And she's still like, she's like become even an even bigger like international DJ. She's also probably the first, she's just one of the first out transgender women that I've met in my life. I've been watching that topic for a long time, just kind of suspiciously, not like, not distrusting it, but just like more like curi out of curiosity. But it wasn't until I met her and was working with her where I really got it, like what it meant to be transgender and that eventually led to me coming out. But this is all just to say, I've seen DJs here and I've seen DJs in Chicago where when people die in their community, I mean, they are kind of like stewards of that community. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not like a full-blown family or family reunion. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't see all of those dynamics from the inside. But so, so anyway, so when I started DJing, when I started in Chicago, um, I, I didn't really start doing dance music until I moved back to Utah. And it was just about playing for friends. That's really how it started. But I'm still just treating it like a hobby. I don't know. The thing that's cool about it, I think, is that every DJ has like a lineage. I mean, you could say that everybody does who's listening to music. You have bands that you were there for the creation of. You have certain DJs that you were there when they started. 
or that you remember, you remember their style or their aesthetic. But a DJ is just a more explicit example of that because the lineage, they produce something that is like, comes out of that, that history of the music and the relationships they had through that music. And that's why I always wish everybody was a DJ. I, either of you, if you ever wanted to be a DJ, <laughs> I would want to hear what you would do. But we can talk about stand-up because that's more, I'm doing more of that. I just do, I DJ now just if people ask me and I practice a lot at home. There's a lot of snobbery in that world too. And it's a, it's a very bro-y world mm -hmm. still. <laughs> Maybe it's less, it's gotta be less bro-y than it used to be. I think, that's, I think that's something that's hard about it. There's a real utility that you bump up against when you're not like a cis man moving through those spaces because society's been designed for the cisgender man more than everyone else. I don't know, when you give some of that up, you really feel it. You bump up against it mm -hmm. in language and, um, but we can talk about the, let's talk about stand-up. Okay. Because I do a lot, I've done a lot more of that. So I started like, like a year and a half ago, maybe. People really don't take you seriously in the stand-up world until you're like 10, 15 years in. Mm -hmm. Which I'm like, will we even be alive in 10 to 15 years, you know? <laughs> so... But, um, I don't know what to do with that, but, um... When you say people, do you mean other comedians or just audiences? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of the standard in, like, the, when you get into, like, the professional DJ world, they always talk about, like, well, how many years are you in, and they say you really don't get good until you've been in for, like, a 10 years or mm -hmm. 15 years or whatever, and maybe these are just things that people say. The other thing is, like, I feel like if you've worked in certain careers, you've had more practice just talking to people, mm -hmm. even if you're not a DJ... Or, I'm sorry, even if you're not a comedian, I'm sorry, now I'm mixing them up. So, I don't know, I feel weird about that. So what I do, I, and I've talked to so many since I've started, I've talked to so many, like, queer people who are like, oh, I would really like to do this. I don't want to do stand-up at, like, Wise Guys, which is, like, the... The option. Yeah, that's the option. And that's the, that's the, like, highest that gets in this city here, is Wise Guys. And it's in the name Wise Guys. Yeah. And um, not like they won't let other people perform. But a lot of people, they just can't handle it. They can't, they're just not durable enough to go into that space. Mm. If you go to an open mic night at like the bucket list night at Wise Guys, you just have everything. And it is mostly male dominated. There's actually a lot more diversity than I expected. There's a lot of bisexual people in the mix. There's a decent amount of female comedians who are really funny um but you have to you just have to be ready to hear like all kinds of things people make all kinds of jokes about genocide which i i don't believe that anything should be off limits i just think it's about how you set it up are you giving people personhood mm -hmm. even if you're going to make fun of people i still think you should give them some kind of personhood especially if they're like I guess below you in like an intersectional way. So I so I choose those nights really rarely. I don't go to Wise Guys very much. I have done it. I want to. I have a joke that I prepared specifically for Wise Guys that I still need to do. Um, That's what I was going to ask. When you do go to those nights, do you modify your set? No. For that audience. Mm -mm. No, because like so. The, one of the things about it is like there are certain jokes that maybe like I have a joke 
that does talk about pronouns. It talks about non-binary pronouns. I've noticed that if I do it out of the city, people don't get it as much. Mm. And um, But if I do it in the city, people are more likely to get it, especially people probably our age and younger. But if I do um, most of the material that I do, and this is just the way it is. I mean, this relates back to the thing about the DJ world too, where it's like, because they're male dominated and, you know, and I don't, I'm, I don't even want to like, I don't mean that in a way to like say all men are bad or something like that, but it's just like, that's your main audience. Mm -hmm. That's your main audience. They have the highest disposable income. If a woman comes to watch a show, it's way more likely that she's coming with a guy. There's this actress that I really like that I follow who's named Alexandra Billings. And she always says, it's a cisgender world. She said, it just is. And she's transgender, and I don't know if I already mentioned that. So to me, it sucks because it's like, personally, I want to make things that, I want to talk about like all these different things, but at the end of the day, it's like, I want Joe's dad, you know, to get it. And like, <laughs> and Joe's like, and there's more of them than there are of all the other people. And so it's like, so most of my material I design for them. And then if I can make it, if I can make it so that other people like it too, that's great. But I think that's reflective of something that's happening right now in, well, at least in the country, because it's like people who make art and people who make culture, you want it to progress. But like how much can it progress if we're still, if we still have to say, have the same conversations, like being like, I'm a human being, like, please don't degrade me, you know, or please don't dehumanize me in a way that will like take my rights or my health care. These are conversations that I'm sick of having. Like, I think people are sick of having these conversations. People are sick of asking, having to ask for a really basic, basic respect. I don't know, but that's the thing about the comedy world. Anybody who wants to go into the comedy world, I would tell them that's what you're up against. But I think that you can use that. If you can go into a space, if you can have the nerve to go into a space that is dominated by masculine, masculinity, I guess, you can use that because comedy is about friction and if you have the nerve to do it you can use that friction to your advantage and actually if you can get to that point and i'm not saying i'm like a genius or that i've arrived i'm just, <laughs> I'm just a little baby stand-up comedian but if you can use that friction to your advantage you can it's priceless it's like it's really va it's valuable and that's what most of the male comedians who get up they're trying to get to that, but they can't. And you see a lot of straight cisgender male comedians who are like, they're kind of doing jokes where they're bisexual or they're gay or they're trans or they're, or they're not white or whatever. They're literally like pulling from these other identities to try to spice up their jokes. Like that's where the friction is. Yeah, yeah. But, and, but the thing is, I'm not, I don't think that it's like off limits. I think, I think a white, straight, cis guy can make a joke about being a trans woman. He just needs to, like, use his brain, you know? <laughs> and there are there are comedians who yeah. do that I really like. So I'm not one of those people. I don't think things are off limits. And I want somebody to make me, when I go, I want somebody to make me laugh in spite of myself, even if they're telling me something I really find, like, morally, like, reprehensible or offensive or... Because comedy is about making people laugh in spite of themselves. What's sticking with me is when you said that culture cannot progress, right? If you keep having these conversations, the same conversations. Mm -hmm. Catering to this one demographic. And, and yeah. this experience is all tend to be the same. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and with that too, if, how do you feel about having to design 
your material for that audience? Do you feel like that holds you back? And having it to design design that for him, for for him, for them, well, for yeah, the men. Yeah. Um, do you feel like that's part of the issue? Because if we're catering still like what's the what are the options cater like not not that i'm saying you're catering um but if you're if you're forming your material for that audience or if you don't and you just do what you like want to do like truly what are those outcomes you know yeah well i'm not i mean i do think for somebody who's like new i think it's just about doing it and just doing it and doing it and doing it regardless and then and you can just try every which kind of thing you want to do all, all of the comedians they've read about that's what they do and so they'll have a year where they wear really weird costumes or they'll have a year where they sing or whatever you know they you go through phases but um and your voice changes too because it's more than even about it being about like your jokes they're comedians who will tell the same jokes for literally for 10 years or the tempo and their timbre of their voice, their delivery will change like a lot because it's about getting as deep into your voice as you can um, and into um, responding to other people. It's really like playing like an exaggerated version of yourself. It is a form of acting. Um, yeah. But um, I don't, so I do, I do cater to them, but some of the, I'm really proud because some of the jokes that I'm the most proud of are, um, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of transgender people come up to me and just like really thank me. And, and I love it when I can tell a joke where like the transgender people are laughing hysterically into tears and everybody else is like, can we laugh at this? Yeah. You know, they're like <laughs> yeah. really uncomfortable and their discomfort is even more like funny to the like the queer people in the crowd because mm-hmm. it's like my goal if I can keep going with this is just that I would I want to turn the room upside down and it's nice it's really satisfying because when you leave you don't I don't have to take home a microphone or any kind of music equipment or anything it's mm-hmm. all inside of you and that feels really good but um I don't think you can get away from catering to them make if I move if so if I move to like if I move to LA or I move to Chicago, probably it will change the standard of what I'm doing mm-hmm. because um, it's a different population somewhat. But I notice even in like the most prominent like transgender comedians, the most, the biggest one right now, her name is Jay McBride. And I do think she's really funny. I think she's pretty clever, but she does like talk about a lot of like, some, I don't, I wonder if she would call it low-hanging fruit, but some of it kind of is. But it's just always there. This idea that a transgender woman is like a predator. Mm. This idea that a transgender woman is, um, that no one wants her, you know? that And um, all of these like really degrading ideas, they're in the room with you, so you kind of have no choice. You It would be silly not to use them. Mm-hmm to your advantage. If you have to deal with them, then you may as well use them, turn them on their head. And that's what I would say to anyone. If you have to deal with this crap in the world anyway, use it. But I, but even with her, there are a few jokes where I'm like, like, I think that, I think if the world was further along, I don't, there are jokes I don't think she would make. Mm. And I feel that way about a lot of the other big transgender comedians. What brought you to do comedy? Because obviously you're multi-talented and you can act and you can do many different things. What, drew you to getting on stage and 
going through this yeah. process that's like not an easy one. Comedy is yeah. definitely not an easy road. Uh, that's a great question. I um I think I just felt like really powerless um and i felt like most cis people like they just don't really listen to me <laughs> and it's not like i want everybody in the world to like listen to me but like it was nice because it's like if with an open mic it's like you have three minutes so you can you have three minutes you can do whatever you want you can just get up and yell at everyone for three minutes if you want <laughs> and um so there's that, and so I think I needed a way to like speak for myself in front of the people, and and especially in front of, you know, even though maybe I sound really resentful of a lot of the masculinity in these spaces, I do feel called to speak to them because it's like, we know from Google statistics, like transgender women are not like a small category on Google, and uh, transgender female pornography, I should say. It's, and they've done studies that show that the users who look at pornography of men with other men, they're mostly distinctly different groups than the users who look at transgender pornography of transgender women. Which, it, even though people always act like being with a trans woman means you're gay because of you know, the utility of like body parts or whatever, mm. Google statistics, which are just available to everybody, and that's from several years ago, beg to differ and so to me it's like i felt i wanted to speak i wanted to speak to the men i mean not just to them so for me there is an there is an activist bend it's like i'm going to force them to listen to me they need to listen to me wow. so. it's in a context where it seems like they're willing to yeah they're willing to and it, it's so interesting the feeling when a woman gets up it's, it's so and it's been interesting to feel this in myself because we've all been programmed to have all these feelings about about gender and um because gender really is like architecture that we're like moving through. That's how I always feel when I'm in the world. Is like if a if a woman gets up, especially if she's like conventionally attractive, the feeling before she says anything is just like she's gonna suck. She's mm -hmm. not gonna be good. Mm -hmm. She's not gonna be funny. I'm ashamed to say that I feel it too. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I do that too. Yeah, it's because it's because like she's too hot for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, it's like if she's hot, she can't be funny. Yeah. Um, and then, um, but if a guy gets up who's wearing the most average, if the most average looking guy gets up in the most average looking pair of jeans that he picked up off of his floor, the feeling automatically, it's almost like, it's almost like a relief. It's almost like, oh, he's going to be funny. It's almost like I can, we can relate to him. We know who this guy is. <laughs> and, um, and he'll, and he might not be funny at all. And in fact, in a lot of cases, he won't be funny at all. But people are more willing to laugh at that guy, regardless uh -huh. of whether he's funny or not. Yeah, before anything is said. Mm -hmm. And so it's been interesting to get up and kind of have this feeling where it's like, there's kind of an attitude in the, tr the comedy world where it's like, oh, we better not offend the transgender people because they'll cancel us like they did to Dave Chappelle or whoever, you know. It's like this, this, it's this thing in that bro-y world that they talk about is like, being canceled, having the leftists come after you. But the truth is, like, mobs of leftists online, for however bad they might be for your mental health on Twitter or whatever, they didn't cancel Dave Chappelle. They, if anything, they probably made him more popular with certain people. It's like, there's no real power. The, the idea that you can just, like, cancel a comedian because they said something you don't like is absurd so that's that's what I, when i get up that's always the feeling is like oh what's this transgender person gonna do i think people expect you to plead for your dignity mm -hmm. and for your life mm -hmm. but 
so it's very satisfying to not do that. It's really satisfying to go, you know, Michelle Obama says, we go, when they go low, we go high. <laughs> and so in the comedy world, it's nice to be like, they expect you to go high and to like, <clears throat> act like clever and dignified and woke. And it's just really pleasant to go way below anything <laughs> they could ever expect and just be even, and, and be even stupider than they could ever fathom and degrade them even more than they could expect. It's, Anyway. The way I see you describe that, it sounds so satisfying. It's really satisfying. <laughs> I can see that because it's like, even though you would be acting, you know, quote unquote stupid or dumb, it's like, to get to that point, you have to have like the ability to um, articulate, you know, that what you're talking about as far as people coming on stage and immediately feeling that vibe and like have mm. the wherewithal to acknowledge, to be able to recognize that you were doing that. Mm -hmm. And like, that takes a lot of... I don't know what you would call it, but like, like a kind of intelligence yeah. um, that is, I think, funny. Like it is something you can use. Yeah. I think, I think the, one of the weird things about it, because even though they try to measure in years how experienced you are, the truth is, if you're a woman or if you're queer in some way, like you probably think way more about the things you say or the clothes that you wear mm -hmm. or the way that you move through the world. <clears throat> and so, yeah, maybe it's not the same as doing like stand-up comedy necessarily, but it is like, those are layers of like dealing with reality that a lot of men never have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's, I think that that, I think that can give you edge actually. Yeah. And I think people don't realize, I think we're trained to think that we're, to be worried and be hurt. But I don't know, sometimes it's really satisfying. Someone's trying to degrade you. They're trying to say something that'll hurt your feelings. And it's like, it's satisfying to realize that it has nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is just somebody having their own delusion about Jennifer Lopez's, you know, transgender child or, you know, some celebrity's transgender child and there's some guys throwing a tantrum on, phase, on stage. But it, I, I just know. want to say, um, before you ask your question, that that is something like that, I feel like is one of the major factors that I feel like distinguishes my experience from, um, cis people is just like that recognition of the layers of reality that are happening. And mm -hmm. like, I really like the way that you described it as like moving through architecture because it's mm -hmm. like all the scaffolding that's constantly put up sometimes mm -hmm. very ad hoc in ways that just like ends up being like permanent uh -huh. um yeah so like that i don't really know what to say other than that like i resonate with that a lot and that that is like the big factor that like that i seek out in other people that i mm -hmm. that i that i feel like helps me connect to other people or, or that when i recognize another person i'm like eager to connect with them because it's like okay you are also seeing like all this stuff in between mm -hmm. us not just like you know, this is gender white guy who's just like mm -hmm. oblivious to all of it and feeling great, mm -hmm. you know? Well, it's stuff that's not ours. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's so much of that architecture that's not, it's not ours. It's not our shit. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to like deal with it. It is really satisfying to meet people who are like, who aren't inside of that or, or who are not, who have consciously recognized that that it's been artificially imposed onto us. Mm -hmm. Who can like recap yeah. and chat and touch it. And it's like, yeah. just to even see someone do that is like, oh, you like knew that was yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you point that out or something. Right. There, that's really a thing. It's really weird. I was going to ask about how, what are your thoughts on improv? I have, I have a great answer for this. There was an improv class that I went to take in, um, 
I was so excited to do improv. I did this acting workshop in LA in December and I kind of splurged to do it and I was like, whatever, I'm just going to do it. I'm really glad I did it. It wasn't exactly improv and then I came back and I wanted to do an improv class here. It was a big class. It might have been 50, 60 people. But there were a lot of cisgender guys in the class. And I'm, some of them were actually very nice to me and seemed to want to talk to me more. But there were enough of them in the class that just had like the most thinly veiled, like almost like open disgust for me, just being, just contempt for me, just standing there mm. in the space. It was like everybody in the class was free to make all the innuendos in the world. But if I made an innuendo, it was like read very differently. It was like just because of my identity. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that was a big part of it. And um, it sucks because improv is a place where it's like, if you really don't like someone for no reason at all, it's going to come up in improv because mm -hmm. you're waiting for the other person to like finish the scene or to give you your next line or to, to feed, you have to feed off of each other. So you have to, you have to be comfortable with each other. The, so I actually didn't finish taking the class. I'm glad I didn't pay for the whole thing. I only did like a couple of them. And, um, it's not like my feelings were hurt as much as it was just like, just the sheer utility, because speaking of architecture, architecture as utility, it's like just the utility of going through this class. It's like, if somebody doesn't want you there and they're not willing to like keep up their part of the scene with you, mm -hmm. what do you do with that? Yeah. How do you salvage that? So I think that, I, so I didn't do any other improv since then. Maybe I'll go back and try again. I don't know. But like, I think that's something that people who aren't cis are dealing with right now in the acting world and in because it's like just all of that all of that architecture it's just where so many people just believe that's just the way things are and should be and sometimes it takes a lot of conscious effort to be like no like these words actually don't apply to me you know or just to have to like have a conversation and be like let's be people and let's talk about like a little bit of let's establish like a little bit about who we are anyway i don't know that's my frustrating improv and what story. that was like in la right no the improv class was here okay I mean, and there were there were definitely people in the class who i think were like very very conservative and to me, i don't know i think they look at me like i'm trying to like well you can just really feel that there's all this rhetoric going around whenever you bump up against someone who's like they're circulating a lot of that the ability for me to be like, look, I'm just, I'm just a person. Like, I'm not trying to seduce you. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying, I'm just trying to take a class. Yeah. And, um, so I don't know. I'm, my heart goes out to anyone who's in that position because you're just, you're dealing with like all these extra obstacles. They're just part of that architecture, which is a lot of the architecture just seems so arbitrary to me. But anyway. And you were just featured in a film mm -hmm, mm -hmm. called Dragonfly. Yeah. Uh, directed and produced by Will Sky Biggs. Uh -huh. What was that like? It was really cool. Um, that was in, let's see, we shot it in November. She got, I don't know how much she wants me to talk about all of it. Probably, I don't know. Um, it, um, 
she got a pretty decent budget for it for a small film, I would say, for Utah. But and she she brought in like a crew from LA to film. So it was cool. They had these like large monitors, like you could see everything on while it was being filmed and you had like eight or nine people behind the camera. I know it's not like a full production, but still it was like the crew itself was kind of like its own machine mm -hmm. and you kind of like um, saw that work. Anyway, the character Willow uh, wrote for me was kind of a bigot. She's kind of like a, a healer, witch type of person. I bet you had so much fun with that. It was really fun. <laughs> I got to think about, I have, I have a couple aunts in particular who are like really into like <laughs> herbal remedies and stuff and muscle testing. And so it was cool to kind of like think about them a lot. Um, cause I grew up around, I was hugely socialized around these aunts and, um, uh, and the, I mean, she is, this character is a bigot. Her name's Greya. She is a bigot, but she's like, it's not like, it's, it's not like really explicit bigotry like it is in our world, like we see every day. But, um, Willow wanted to make a film that talked about, um, kind of used fantasy to talk about like an introverted person's like experience in a fantasy story. So it's a very introverted piece. It's very cozy. Mm. Um, and um, she, um, it was just really cool. It was really cool watching her. She had like a little screen that she held to, to monitor the, the composition and the light and just everything that was happening. And to see my friend who is a mom, a single mom, but also, well, she's not single right now, I should say. She, um, <laughs> Sorry, Willow, I'm getting, I'm fucking this up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to see my friend who is a mom, but who also is transgender, um, authoring a film was just really like, it did something to me. You don't see something like that every day. Mm -hmm. yeah. You just don't. And, um, so it was a, it was, it was a hard piece in some ways to do, but it was really special. I feel really lucky to have been able to do it. Um, is there anything else to say about it? I want it to get into like Cannes or something. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. But and do you want to pursue acting? Is that like I would love to. I yeah. did lots of acting growing up in Idaho. That's how I survived Idaho. That's how <laughs> I learned how to pretend to be a man for yeah. so long. Yeah. Because you're in these. I would play like I played like Lancelot, and I wore like a suit of armor, and <laughs> so people are teaching me how to like walk and how to like sword fight and. <laughs> How to be in these like romance scenes with these like gorgeous women. I played like a baseball player in the, my first play. So, um, but so theater, I think theater is kind of a sanctuary for people. But um, if I had my way, I'd go back. I would do more. I'm proud of the work that I did in Dragonfly. I do, I do think I did a good job. <laughs> I will say that. I think I did a good job. I worked really hard on it. Yeah. Hopefully it will be available somewhere else. I'm yeah. sure it will be yeah. eventually. Sure. Willow's really got an eye and she really has a unique vision. And um, it was also cool to be on a set where like the crew was just so diverse. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, there's a part of me that's like, oh, I want to act in everything. But then it's like, I know that most films aren't like that. Yeah. And I know that mm -hmm. most, they don't usually let you have the time to like talk to each other and really, anyway, so. 
Yeah. But it would be nice to do, I would love to do stand-up and then be able to choose, like, the occasional, like, loving film project. You mm-hmm. know, that would be nice. Or something kind of that really speaks to me. Anyway. Yeah, you will. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's going to happen. My Instagram is conceptual milf, which is, it just is what it is. <laughs> I love that your Instagram. <laughs> kind of funny. Um, so if you want to follow me, you can follow me there. And um, I um, I have a comedy show that's coming up in June, early June. I think it's June 9th, but I'm not totally sure. And it actually has a filth theme. So... Mm. The show will be more explicitly filthy, maybe, than other things. We'll see. I can show more of my body at this show, which is kind of fun. Um, I'm DJing tomorrow night, but you uh, listeners will not hear <laughs> about this until it's too late. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, in terms of pursuing comedy, though, I would say... For anyone who doesn't fit in, I would say that as scary as it is, it's, it is an opportunity. At the very least, if you go to an open mic night, you're guaranteed three minutes and you can do whatever you want and people have to listen to you. And so you can do whatever you want. And um, I just think that it's a nice place. You know, I, uh, I had like really severe agoraphobia this year. So it's, not, it's a nice place to be like, build up your energy and to say, I'm going to go do this and, um, and to just do it and to be okay with it, however it goes. And to, uh, so, so I guess I would say that, and I would say people should use the friction. If there's friction, we don't have the luxury of living in a world where there aren't really corrosive ideas around us and people aren't believing that really fucked up, like dehumanizing things about us. And since that is the case, I think I think we have no choice. We have it's kind of a battleground in a way. Use the friction. Use it. It's there. It's that or we lay down and die. That's literally your your option. <laughs> <laughs> so Thinking on that conversation, the thing that stuck out most to me was that she talked a lot about just using your experience and like what makes you different to to your advantage, like to employ the friction that um, you experience as a person. Um, I thought it was really interesting that she talked about like the white cis hat experience and how these people are often like drawing from other identities because like some part of them recognizes that their experience is so like it's interesting because that is one of the few times I feel like you can see a white cis guy um, kind of acknowledging that his experience is the default, the standard, kind of uninteresting, kind of bland, sort of everything's catered to him. There's not, like, the friction that makes, um, that is, like, the real fodder for the, the best, for, for interesting jokes or for, you know, things that people haven't heard before that want to, um, like, especially if you're in comedy, looking for an angle um, that's that's going to make somebody laugh. Like, you're just not going to get it out of that white cis het experience. Um so just like since we've had that conversation, it's something I've been keeping in mind. Um, and it has reminded me of the conversation we were having with our friend Audrey Lockie about 
M. Night Shyamalan, of all things. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And how she believes that he's sort of one of the um, great American filmmakers that's working right now. And part of that is because he um, employs this, like, ideology that's consistent throughout his films where the thing that makes you different is the thing that sort of gives you an edge, um, gives you the ability to like see the world, um, and empathize and, and feel. ultimately saves you. Yeah. Saves you. Um, so yeah, it kind of put those thoughts in dialogue, uh, because I, th- I guess for me, it's really easy to think of, um, identity or oppression and, um, you know, just marginalization, uh, and, and things like microaggressions and whatnot to just be like, you know, through and through bummers, things that are frustrating to have to interact with, like that friction every day to have to, to be up against it. And specifically, I, I guess the part of it that I'm thinking of, and I loved this articulation of it was like the, the architecture around us, Mm -hmm. the scaffolding, um, and, and this idea of like reaching out and touching something that people all, that we've all just agreed as a society to agree not to talk about, to pretend like it's not there, that it's not something that is into, into, uh, integral to supporting like these structures around us. And for that to feel so, that act to feel just crazy to see, <laughs> um, like it shouldn't be that crazy to see, but it is, um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think it's cool to think about that act as being um, something powerful that you can do that not everyone can do. Um, when we were think- talking about friction and, and how to utilize that, I think it's great that she does find a way to wield that um, and, and use it as power, but when you look at it in, you know, as a bigger picture, it's like unfortunate that she, you know, has to go through that every day. Her existence is collecting all of these experiences that may or may not be hurtful to her um, and dehumanizing to her at times. And then she gets to express that or like use them and flip them and, and, talk about them in like five minutes on in comedy you know Mm -hmm. and there's like other ways that i'm sure she's expressing herself but i just wish um that we existed in a world in which she could just uh, um do comedy that that doesn't need to draw on that that doesn't need to draw on like her the negative aspects of her experience yeah the pain the pain yeah i i think um Similar to, I mean, this has kind of been a little bit of a thread of some of our conversations with different people like Clover and High, but, uh, you know, it just sucks right now. (laughs) We, I think Brooke said something like, we don't have the luxury of like living in a place that doesn't want to kill us a lot of the time or dehumanize us. So, yeah, I mean, it's, this is something I obviously think about all the time, just the fact that the world is so hostile um, and it feels like and we're in such a like culture wars moment of like quote unquote American history that it feels like every opportunity that anyone gets to 
say fuck you to another person in like a systemic institutionalized or or like otherwise powerful way they jump on it like everyone's really eager for another person to eat shit right now like there are several people i would love to see shit you know name a few no (laughs) (laughs) um like that sucks like it would be really nice like there's no reason it's 2023 you know there's no reason that life needs to be painful from Mm -hmm. like a resource or material standpoint but it is and that's a choice that's being made and uh you know maybe we can laugh about it with brooke yeah she's so funny yeah it was she was making me laugh yeah she's yeah do yourself a favor and follow her on instagram at conceptual milf yeah i hope you know how to spell those words (laughs) Um, is that that hard to spell conceptual yeah i don't know do you think our audience doesn't know how to spell conceptual i i hope that's what I just said. Okay. Are you listening? <laughs> so Conceptual Milf on Instagram, she posts about all of her events that are coming up, everything that she's working on. She, in the car when I was driving her back, she was telling me about this art project that she wants to do and kind of collect and create these mounds of tiny little objects to make a bigger object and it really excites me because I know that's going to be good. So I don't know if she'll post about that, but... Yeah, did she say you could talk about that? Uh, she says, well, hang on, we'll, like, talk, we'll, like, do it, you know? Like, she say you could record it into your podcast? That it's you send fine. Out <laughs> She's fine. All right. Um, and so also have a great Pride weekend. Be safe and be careful. Um, Pride weekends make me anxious just because I, I just feel like that's what we're talking about. This is like we're we're in a weird cultural, not a weird cultural moment. We're in a pretty normal cultural moment for the U.S. where people fucking are feeling very emboldened to hate gay people and hate yeah. trans people. So please take care of yourselves this weekend. Take care of each other. Check in on your friends. Make sure everybody got home safely and have fun, more importantly. But also um, protect yourselves. So... That is everything for episode 10. Do you have anything? No. Follow us on everything. Uh, SLC, or Locomotive SLC. No. <laughs> uh, Locomotive Podcast on Instagram. Locomotivepodcast.com. And then after this 10th episode, my goal is to Remember be all that on shit? Twitter. Yeah, and, and get us on Twitter. And then also get us on fucking TikTok. Okay. Um, but we'll see. I, I'm tired. Yeah. (laughs) I need to go to work. Okay. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.